Welcome to Foster Carolinas, connecting the Carolinas to voices of foster care. I am so excited to be in the podcast room today with the executive director of Foster Family Alliance of North Carolina, Miss Gail Osborne. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. I am excited that you were able to come in kind of short notice, but we're going to roll with it. Um, tell the folks that are listening, what is Foster Family Alliance of North Carolina? And what do you guys do? So Foster Family Alliance is what I like to call the foster parent, resource parent, kinship, adoption parent support for the entire state. And so we pull all entities of the system together as providers and caretakers and end up like serving and training and loving on them and also advocacy. Oh yeah. Advocacy is huge. I love that. So if a foster parent's listening to this and they need some extra hours of training. Is that something y'all offer? Absolutely. You just go to our website and ffa-nc.org. There are probably 30 different webinars that we have on there. And all you have to do is watch that webinar. And then you and I will go, or the person taking it will go back and forth just so that I know you've, you've listened to it. And then we give, we, you know, give them the credit. Oh, that's all. And do most DSSs accept that? Absolutely. In fact, I've had DSS offices reach out, like, what other trainings do you have? Um, hey, we need a training on blah, blah, blah. And so we'll jump in. The, the big push last year was children that were exposed in utero. And so the social workers were asking for multiple counties for us to create a, tra- a trauma-focused, substance abuse-focused training. And so that we did. So that's interesting because I adopted a child that had abuse in utero. Um and I don't know how you feel. It's so frustrating to me that um, my my baby has to like fight that the rest of her life, and mom didn't didn't face any kind of consequence. Is there any kind of policy out there? Or is anybody advocating for something? So it's interesting you asked me that because I too have I have to count which day of the week it is. How many kids I have. <laughs> Um, so four of the five children living in my home have been substance abused in utero. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's probably not the exact wording to use, but you know, you'll get it. But I started asking politicians, like, why are we not holding the birth family or the birth mom accountable? Because to me, this is, this is extreme abuse. And he was very blunt with me and I won't call his name just, you know, for protection. But the bottom line is until we start recognizing the fetus as a child, then there's not going to be any, you know, consequences for that exposure. That's kind of what I thought. I was like, um, abortion has a far reaching consequence because if I had, if, if my baby had been born and I had done to her brain, what the birth mom had done to her brain, I would be in the jailhouse right now. Absolutely. I wouldn't be getting out. Well, and not only that, it's just, you know, I I was just talking to someone in the NICU where one of our current placements um, is residing for the next other, they're saying about a month, but the politicians, the judges, the DSS workers, they need to go see what these babies go through withdrawing. And I mean, they're, they're not consolable. They're screaming. Their skin is hurting and you see tremors and it, it just breaks my heart that these babies have to go through this. Yeah. And of course, when there's not a safety plan or a safety person identified when the child is born, and that could be a kinship provider or a fictive kin, something like that. 
um, then the child would come into foster care. And one of the things that just breaks my heart is if that child goes into foster care early on, they're in the NICUs alone. There's not that person that's there 24 hours a day to hold this baby and to meet their needs and teach them to eat, sleep, console, um, you know, and go through that pattern every two to three hours of their life every day. Um, and we all know how attachment begins. I yeah. mean, and when those formative months are not, you know, getting everything they need and it, it just opens up so many other issues down the road. And, you know, I, I read a statistic one time where just one hour connecting with the child will give you so many days of regulation and things in the long run. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it makes total sense. And if there are any nurses listening, please don't take that as a negative and that, you know, only a parent can provide that because, you know, the nurses have been amazing too. Oh yeah. Um, and they are absolutely, they love these children just like they were their own. And one of them said to me a couple of nights ago, 100%, I have to put myself in the role that I'm going to make this child's life better for this moment, for this hour, for this night or this day shift that I'm working. And I see that played out in NICUs all across the state. So how many um, medically fragile children have you taken in? We're probably upwards of five or six. This, the new one that's coming would be number six. Oh, wow. Um, and so we, we look at G tubes and um, really high needs metabolic disorders and things, you know, things that are just different and they're hard to maintain. Um, but, you know, I do have my limits. Um, I was going to say, and on top of it, you're the executive director of this. Uh, like, that's crazy. Right. And and so we totally got into the medically fragile by accident. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's really unique. And, and that child ended up staying with us. And I mean, we were once told that he probably wouldn't survive the first year. Mm. Um, and if you saw him now, I mean, how old is he now? He's four and a half. And, and a half. you know, I joke and say he's my assistant manager in training. <laughs> um, so funny. he absolutely, um, survived that first year. It was not easy. 16 mm -hmm. plus placement. I mean, 16 plus hospitalizations, constant blood work, burning up the roads all over North Carolina from the West to the East to get him to specialists. Um, but that is ultimately what led me into my position where I'm at now, because I want to make it better for the next foster parent or the next kinship provider and and for the adoptive families. You know, what has worked for us, what didn't work? And let's bring in more experts. Let's let's tap into these hard subjects that sometimes I feel like I'm suffering alone. <laughs> I don't think you are alone. I think there's lots of people listening going, yes, that's me. And it's it's a lonely road to be a foster parent because I'm. GALs, guardian ad litem, they're there for the kid and they need to be there for the kid. Social workers, they're there for the kid. Um, there's not really an advocate in the middle that's advocating or helping foster parents. I talk to a lot of foster parents. I mean, I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of my time on the phone talking about court and, yep. oh, don't worry about that. And, oh, you're scared that you're, you know, just explaining and educating them. And because a first time foster parent, they're actually kind of fun to watch. Honestly, I kind of enjoy it a little bit. Yes. And then I'm like, but wait, okay, you need to calm down. You need to slow your roll here. Like they just, um, and, and I don't, I'm so glad y'all are doing that because there's just not enough education out there for people once they become licensed. Right. Like they get all this education and I feel like at MAPS class, it's kind of like you, there's no way to absorb all of it. Mm -mm. And you really don't 
um, think about it until you have that kid in your house. Well, and I have to laugh. Like the only thing that really stuck in my mind about maps class um, was, you know, the behavioral end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I worked at that time as a special ed teacher and day treatment program. And I remember saying to myself, there's not a kid that can come through my door that I can't handle. I, you know, I'm a good disciplinarian. I'm very organized, administrative skills, those kinds of things. Honey, that first placement came to that door. I'll never forget. She put me in my place. She dethroned me. She <laughs> let me know real quick that she had to survive my environment and my rules and my life. And to do that, it was just going to be just nonstop chaos. And so, you know, I rode that roller coaster for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then I remember looking at my husband. We can't do this. We we can't. I mean, we have to be very different an approach that we're going into this with. And so at that moment, I started seeking out more training. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to know, how are you meeting these ch- kids that have severe trauma and severe, um, you know, exposure in utero and domestic violence and all that? And the typical um, therapists didn't even have that information, per right. se. Um, they had it in general forms, but never like, let's deep dive into what's going on. Let's go all the way back to conception. And let's look at, you know, what are the genetic components that come into this? What are the environmental components? And so that has been like my drive is to put this information into the parents' hands faster um, in a way that they can absorb it. I don't know about you, Susanna, but at the end of the day, I don't have two and three hours to sit and do training. No. But I can give you an hour, 30 minutes on the way to an appointment, 30 minutes on the way back. My kids know in the car when mama's listening that like voice is off because and and I'm absorbing everything I can. And uh, most of my training happens in the car. Well, it sounds like you travel a lot. Right, so right. Good. So the state of North Carolina, you know. And I live in Asheville, so it is one of those things that wherever we're having something, I'm on the road three plus hours, it seems. That's so crazy. So let's go back to to kids born addicted and talk about like, what is that like if somebody's out there? And because I think sometimes foster parents or people that sign up to be foster parents think, oh, I'm going to take the cute little babies. Mm. But unfortunately, the reason cute little babies are in foster care are not for good reasons. So walk us through like, what is that like when they're coming off of that stuff? So you see a lot of shutdown. Um, you know, I get we have another foster kid in our home now that was a preemie and she's she's thriving now. But the first three and a half, four months that she was in our home, she literally would play possum and oh everybody would be like, she is taking a nap. And I'm like, she's not taking a nap. Watch this. And I would just call her name or I would, you know, walk near her and boom, eyes would open. But that was her way of shutting out all the stimulation. Their bodies just can't handle that external stimulation and deal with that withdrawing going on in their body. Um, You know, the withdrawals look like shaking, tremors, um, pinching their skin. Uh, You try to get a bottle in their mouth and their fists are so tight and their arms are so rigid that it's like prying open a can. Like just the strength, the sheer strength that comes from a three pound, four pound baby. Um, And you pop that bottle in and nine times out of 10, the latch doesn't happen instantly. You have to coax them into it. You have to physically arrange their lips around the bottle because they are so tense. 
um, they scream. If you've ever heard that scream, it, it's something you'll never forget. It is super high pitched. It almost sounds like a cat cry, mm-hmm. but louder. Oh, wow. uh, just that screech. And, you know, we are constantly holding. I've got front pack carriers. But in the beginning, they can't stand to be touched. Just your hands touching their skin, they can scream. Um, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. And you don't see tears normally because they're, they're just, it's an agony. But the other piece of it is, if they're spending so much energy on withdrawals, then how are they gaining weight? They're burning through the calories that are going oh, in their yeah. body. So you you begin to see weights drop. Um you know, they may have been born at two, nine or three something. And, you know, within a few days, they've lost an entire pound because their bodies are just withdrawing. And, you know, when they're in the NICUs, the goal is not to let them hurt or whatever. They will give them medications. Um, I have found that from hospital to hospital, their protocols are similar, but no one specific drug is being used. Mm -hmm. And so they look at morphine, they look at methadone, they look at uh, phenobarbital, um, and it's literally just hold on, um, you know, through that and you have to watch that. But even through that, they can learn to trust that reciprocation that is so important and just sitting there. And, you know, when one of them starts to stir, catch them before they start crying and connect with them. And, and, you know, if you're on a schedule, you know, this cry is not withdrawal symptoms, symptoms, this cry is for to be fed, which mm-hmm. is a normal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but changing diapers is unreal. That's just that sensory piece that goes into just changing a diaper and lights. Um, it is not uncommon to go in NICUs and see all the lights off mm. uh, because it's just too stimulating. Yeah. Um, and how long does it usually last the, when they're trying to get off the... So initially they will not show withdrawal symptoms. So like the first 24 to 36 hours, you may not see any. And, you know, what I have learned is it doesn't matter the amount of drug that the mother did while the child was in utero. It it is specific to each child. Mm -hmm. And so a child could be just incredibly, incredibly, you know, loaded full of all kinds of drugs that they're able to check through the cord, through urine, through blood, um, you know, within instance of a child being born, they can check the blood and the urine and those things like that. Now, cord takes a while to send off, we're talking mm-hmm. the umbilical cord, but what we're seeing is it's each individual child. And so, like, I have one that we know that was exposed every single day of the pregnancy. We've been told that their symptoms were very mild. And then we have another child who was very, very, very exposed. And it's taking months to even get, you know, an eat, sleep, console routine down to where he can really flourish. Mm, so it, it just, it totally depends. And I wish there was a way we could figure that out. Yeah, that would be nice. So um, you travel all over the state, so you know what I know. But if there's somebody out there, like, what would you say to somebody thinking about being a foster parent? Hi, it's Abby with an interruption. This is where we're going to stop off for the week. Join us next week and you will find out the answer that Gail has to this very important question and hear more insight from two powerhouses in the world of advocacy 
and um, serving children in foster care. Thanks for listening. Come back next week. Thanks for joining us today for Foster Carolinas. Were you inspired by something you heard today? Well, we want to encourage you to make the next step, whatever that is. Everyone can do something for children in foster care. If you're not sure where to start, go to our website at www.lotcarolinas.com and see what you can do.